Um, I'm Allison Deutsch, an art historian and junior research fellow here in the IAS. Together with my colleague Peter Leary, just in the back, we've organized the seminar series on vulnerability. For those of you who are new to the series, um, vulnerability is one of the core themes here in the IAS this year. Um, Peter and I have invited scholars from a range of disciplines to discuss how their research engages questions of vulnerability, what the concept means to them, in what ways it's useful or problematic, how vulnerability might be figured, constructed, and understood. This is the sixth seminar in the series. Before the break, we had Andrew Gardner from UCL Anthropology, who discussed the vulnerability of English identity, the impact of the demise on the British Empire on that national identity. The next seminar will not be at the usual time. It's not a Wednesday. It's actually next Monday, the 30th of April at lunchtime, so 12 to 1.30 right here. We'll welcome Professor Anthony Julius from UCL Law, who will be discussing his current research on censorship, the relation of censorship to questions of vulnerability. The conversation today will help us to consider the relation of vulnerability to precarity, fragility, and risk in the making of art. As an art historian, I'm delighted to welcome the first art historians and artists speaking in this series. In this vein, next month on the 30th of May, we'll host a conversation between contemporary artist Zarina Bimji, an art historian and director of the IAS Tamar Garb. That'll be here uh, in the IAS on 30th of May. I'd like to introduce Dr. Anna Marizuela Kim, who's organized this dialogue, and then I'll turn it over to her to introduce our speakers. For the past year, Dr. Kim has been a visiting research fellow at the IAS. Prior to this, she was an invited fellow at the Free University of Berlin an Andrew Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the Courtauld Institute of Art. Dr. Kim is trained as an art and architectural historian, philosopher, and photographer. Her wide-ranging work engages our complex relation to images from Plato to the present digital age, focusing on issues such as histories and theories of the image and iconoclasm, art and terrorism, aesthetics and urban thriving. In May, she convened a symposium here in the IAS titled Troubling Monuments, Making and Breaking Heritage and History. A member of several institutes of advanced study, Dr. Kim's currently an advisor to the Center for Strategic Communications in the Department of War Studies at King's College, among other affiliations. Dr. Kim has a long history of political and social activism, both here, both in the US and internationally, focused on issues of education and human rights in Nicaragua, post-Soviet Ukraine, and in the refugee camps of Greece. She's often called to speak on the public role of museums and artists in the wake of humanitarian crisis, and her review of the Mosaics Room, an organization dedicated to understanding the Middle East and contemporary Arab culture, is forthcoming for Freeze Magazine. Thank you, Anna. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Allison. It's really good to be back at uh, IAS. As, as my colleagues know, I was expelled in Ukraine. Visa expired. So, um, you know, between the strike and getting out of the border, could take place. I think it's really a sign of the times that, um, you know, it used to be that I was on the bad list um, uh, after Nicaragua and, you know, they were afraid that I was a communist and a, a Marxist and now they're worried that I'm going to come work here, you know, that's the big, <laughs> or God, get married to somebody, you know, like this is, the, this, this just shows how this fear has spread just to every level of, of, of society, this, uh, this vulnerability. Um, so, how might art make visible vulnerable states and subjects in ways that challenge conventional aesthetic, political, and social categories, subverting existing hierarchies of power while staging quiet yet potent modes of dissent? 
uh, tonight's uh, convening of two terrific artists brings them into conversation uh, about new bodies of work in painting and photography that bring into view bodies confined both institutionally and psychically. Um, I'd like to begin with uh, Lola Frost, and then I will introduce Edmund Clark. Both will present for about um, 20 to 30 minutes. Um, I'll ask a few leading questions, and we'll just open up to the audience for discussion. Um, can someone, do you want to put up her PowerPoint? Lola's, yeah. Okay. Lola Frost's artistic career spans uh, nearly four decades. She's originally from South Africa and work from her several feminist and war art exhibitions between 1983 and 1996 were taken up by major public collections in that country. Through a set of exhibitions uh, since 2013 in the UK, she has developed a body of work that unsettles the tradition of sublime landscape painting and opens up a psychoanalytical and phenomenological template shaped by desire and subversion. Lola Frost's academic career includes lecturing in various institutions on art history and art theory in South Africa and in the UK. Uh, she received her PhD at Goldsmiths College in 2007 and has published and given conference papers on aesthetics, politics, and ethics in art and international relations. In the context of two exhibitions and several collaborations, uh, she, was, she had a Leverhulme artist residency at War Studies at King's College 2014-15. She explored the productive potential of aesthetic risk, which she's going to discuss tonight. Currently, she is a visiting research fellow in war studies at King's, researching the topic of art and war. Lola, thank you for coming. Thank you, Anna and um, Alison for inviting me here. I'm so delighted to be here. Um, I'm going to do, read a short overview uh, of uh, both uh, well, of my engagement with the topic of vulnerability. I, I wasn't at all sure that I did, that vulnerability applied to my, my practice, so it's been really quite a, an eye-opener to find out that it does. Um, and that overview will, will contain both old and new works. Um, it, it raises a lot of issues, this short paper, and I really look forward to talking to you about those. In the, in, the, in the conversation afterwards. So, um, <clears throat> my conceptually elusive painting practice is certainly shaped by vulnerability. Talking about such vulnerability is not easy, not only because vulnerability is something we try to hide, but also because when it figures in art, it is mediated by processes of creation and interpretation that distribute its effects in unpredictable ways. So in the context of a slideshow of my paintings, I will try to give some shape to how that vulnerability works its way through this painting practice. Here I understand vulnerability to be an emotional state of being defensively wounded, or conversely, as one of being open to being pleasured or wounded. 
My practice seems to be more preoccupied with the latter, as the performance in which vulnerability as woundedness might be transformed throughout. To date, I had not thought of vulnerability as a significant feature of my painting practice. My most consistent analytical effects, sorry, efforts focused on the risks attached to signifying and its, sorry, its signifying and subversive vectors. With regard to the grammar or signifying methods of this practice, I understand it is the reversible, reversible interplay of oppositions, for example, landscape and body, drive and form, line and tonal modeling, just for example, they're more, that deliver a risky, disruptive, and sublime gap within signification. Recently, I've been making claims that the subversive and disruptive politics of my, what I call, improper sublime landscape painting practice delivers a riposte to phallogocentric domination, the repression of the carnal, cognitive control, and instrumental and purposive reason. These rather large claims reside in my understanding that the experience of the sublime in art is the performance of a particular kind of cognitive failure, and as such is an aesthetic risk practice that subverts cognitive mastery and settled hierarchies. Meloponti's metaphor, the flesh of the world, has a powerful resonance here, insofar as the ongoing, irresolvable, and generative relation between oppositions, what he calls the flesh of the world, figured through, quote, doubling difference and desire, delivers an undecidable gap that challenges the assumptions of a philosophical and social imaginary preoccupied with subject-object and mind-body dichotomies and hierarchies. Chris Tabor's formulation of the subject in process on trial occupies a similar terrain. <coughs> Philosophy delivers many useful in insights and its abstractions certainly have shaped my understanding of what is involved in sublime signification and subversion. Theorizing such aesthetic risk is quite different to tackling the pitfalls and the potential of the vulnerabilities that shape my practice. But here goes. Um, after my mother died, and as part of the move, a move to the UK from South Africa from the late 1990s onwards, I developed a new style of painting, always based on photographs or collaged photographs of landscapes. Such painting was articulated as a slow accumulation of small pulsating fractals that serviced the production of inwardly oriented color fields and which morphed into a variety of apertures or protrusions. This painting, titled Horror Vacui, 1999, uh, extends to the coding of unreadable and unconscious writing. You can just see it bleeding through, thus marking that divide or gap between unconscious drive and representational meaning, and that's something I'll come back to quite, quite often. With hindsight, it seems to me that such slow, pulsating, and unconscious accumulation had a lot to do with remaining in the ambit of what Kristeva calls the maternally attuned and dynamically charged but elusive semiotic cora. For me, this was a time of dislocation, mourning, and loss, and perhaps as a response to such vulnerability, this became a time to imagine and mobilize alternatives to the misogynistically derived manias that had beset my mother and which seemed to pervade the social construction of femininity. It was from here that I set forth on a precarious adventure in painting towards emancipation and transformation, which some commentators suggested had something to do with the feminine sublime. 
I had embarked on a PhD study, and which turned out to be something of a trial, in part because I met with resistance to this feminist project from the lads. Maybe <clears throat> this kind of image didn't help. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> also because the sublime was deemed by some to be an outdated category. With hindsight, I would now say that my PhD text formulated an account of the critical value of aesthetic estrangement in art, but it was through my painting practice that I developed a chiasmic or enfleshed method of painting for recuperating female subjectivity and for challenging a phallogocentric imaginary by jamming the tradition of sublime landscape painting. <clears throat> After this period of study, I recused myself to my studio to work secretly on a series of paintings that are vulnerable and viscerally shocking. Derived from photographs, these landscape body paintings sustain an oblique reference to their landscape origins. Indeed, although they evoke figuration by association with improper body parts or positions, it's their fleshy, repetitively morphing fractals that suggest energized and moving bodily interiors, sometimes described as entrails or brains. I was oblivious to the vulnerability and abject potential of such viscerally stalked assemblages, choosing instead to revel in the libidinal pleasures of their making and in the radiant and vulnerable beauty that they deliver. This painting, which evokes, evokes a male torso with its small, very small, uh, erect and vulnerable phallus, is a celebration of that vulnerability. And in the context of a set of collaborations with social science students and scholars during my Levy Hume Artist Residency in War Studies at King's College in 2014 and 15, I emerged from my unconscious lair to make the case for the productive potential of aesthetic risk. Here I argued that this is a practice delivered through any artistic genre or medium and at work in all social strata of societies. Here artists are faced with creative risks, creative and imaginative risks, and audiences with interpretive risks. Such performances of aesthetic rich risk, which engage the multiplicity of our emotional, perceptual, imaginative, and cognitive capacities, and indeed cultural expectations, operate, I argued, as an imminent critique of purposive and instrumental reason, and by extension, the delivery of risk management techniques in war. Uh, by way of example, two exhibitions in Somerset House during this residency engaged with the riskiness of impropriety, understood as a form of norm contestation, and as a, as a performance of being open to that which is disallowed. So this painting, titled Taking Risks, revisits the idea of the substitute self associated with the tradition of sublime landscape painting. Think of Friedrich's figure looking into the distance. Um, uh, as an individuated subject looking into the sublime void. The substitute self in taking risks is not a placeholder for such individuation. Instead, this is a vulnerable, enfleshed, and uncanny vagina head contemplating a different kind of infinite interconnection. The second exhibition of this residency, titled, titled Going South, included a set of paintings which referenced southern tips of Africa, Australasia, and Patagonia, and indeed I'm still working on all of that, which both geographically and metaphorically mobilized the negativity of the phrase going south towards the southern or nether regions of the world. This floating cornucopia, triumphantly bearing its clitoris, 
contest those norms which re regulate female sexuality by celebrating the carnal, vulnerable, and radiant impropriety of body landscape parts. Like Meloponti's notion of the chiasmic flesh of the world, where oppositions rub incommensurably up against one another, this is a painting titled Wild Being, <clears throat> where cognition hardly finds a purchase. Its referent was one of the valleys scoured by the glaciers of Mount Cook in New Zealand. And this hanging assemblage is an accumulation of sensuous and interconnecting marks constituted at that mercurial and distorting interface between drive and form that I spoke of earlier delivering a kind of sublime horror and pleasure. Such disruption is itself a form of impropriety, impropriety that disturbs the established logocentric order. Here we are not ourselves. Such aesthetic risk-taking and impropriety has been subject to backlashes and refusals, exhibiting these paintings as at time, times been met with incomprehension and dismissal, even accusations of violence. I should add, they have also invited praise, identification, and pleasure. These responses may say something about audiences and their cultural expectations, but these paintings also address our inner, transient, and unconscious psychic lives. For those viewers who conform to norms that repress and regulate, re, sorry, regulate us, such psychically inward processes may well be experienced as improper or even violent. Yet, for me, such psychically attuned openness is something of an imperative as the transformation of vulnerability and as an opportunity to contest those norms which regulate or degrade us. I'm not able to say with certainty which vulnerabilities have shaped this practice. Is this, a practice, is this practice a response to my anxieties about misogyny or my experience of being a woman in a culture still structured by masculine privilege? Or are they a consequence of me being an outsider in the UK, or of my traumatic familial histories, or the turbulence of living in apartheid South Africa? Or more generally, is vulnerability an effect of being subjects in the grip of an inhuman machine in which desire has been commodified, and where co-constitution is often instrumentalized, all of which render us in some way as psychically, socially, emotionally, even corporeally wounded? Such generalized vulnerability is, of course, a central trope in the Western tradition of sublime landscape painting, in which its subjects are usually precariously positioned against a void or alone in vast spaces or a radiant universe. I suspect that the, tr the sublime tradition of Western painting delivers subliminal opportunities in which each one of us encounters our vulnerabilities, differences, and desires. In all these key cases, we do so without being able to hierarchically fix, cognitively master, or even conceptualize such experience. Like psychoanalysis, sublime experience in art might be an opportunity to obliquely approach those fears and vulnerabilities that constitute our subjectivities, or at the very least, to mark the incommensurability that shapes them. This painting, titled The Flesh of the World, whose fleshy, soft, and open crotch speaks to both human and inhuman vulnerability, marking as it does both the end of the life of a Patagonian glacier and the potential of some sort of metaphorical and fleshy rebirth. No sublime angst here. This is a painting that cherishes vulnerability, open, sensual, tender, embodied, and infinitely connected.
With regard to this painting, titled Living the Fold of a Snow-Covered Volcano in Chile, we had embarked on a precarious, cold, and sublime campervan trip through the bottom, bottom section of the Andes, weaving in and out of Argentina and Chile, along the Cordillera, and ended up ecstatic in the wake of a storm at the edge of Lake Osorno, which is framed by two active volcanoes, smaller of which is represented here. The fleshy forms of this smaller volcano reson res resonate with the repertoire of me metaphors and forms at work in this practice. But it was also an event that called me. Its lighting, shape, and mood registered something of the metaphorical significance of infinite and immense geological time, a slow and fleshy time that shapes the interconnected interconnectedness of the human and the non-human. Being aesthetically open in this context then also implies taking up a particular kind of ethical stance, one in which we are prepared to be open to that which is different, be that human or non-human difference. It seems to me that such an ethics of openness also extends to being vulnerable, although not as being wounded, but as ready to be open, open to differences that might pleasure or threaten or disturb me. Two new paintings uh, called Deep and Radiant Time and Double Desire also call on us to open up to the transient vulnerabilities of unspeakable, unguarded, and libidinal psychic life. A risky but transformative encounter, I suggest, that is delivered at the interface between these improper sublime landscape paintings and our aesthetically attuned collaboration. Such aesthetically mediated vulnerability and risk is of course different to the precarity of lived need and economic deprivation or those social, psychological, and corporeal vulnerabilities produced by domination, war, conflict, or trauma. Yet all of us can take up that practice of aesthetic risk through art, irrespective of the vulnerability or neediness of our lived lives. If, as artists and audiences, we choose to, or are able to take up this aesthetically mediated risk practice, we enter into a performance where the vulnerabilities of lived experience might be transformed and perhaps even celebrated. Thank you. It's 110 meters, uh, sorry, 110 centimeters high by about 130 or 40 centimeters right. high. So they really are. But you can come and see them. The, the scale of, of the show, so I'll tell you about that later. Yeah, they really, I mean, the, the, some of them are of this massive scale and amount of detail. Um, so I'd like to ask you uh, just a few questions to start off. And, you know, clearly you, you come to your work with an incredible theoretical apparatus. And, um, but it's interesting to see, you know, that uh, in your biography that you rebelled against goldsmiths, which is clearly 
you know, represents that, that sort of approach to, to art. And you talk about sort of um, sequestering yourself away from, from that. And, just, and just the lads. Yes, oh, just the lads, okay, <laughs> just the lads. But um, you, know, you seem to have this kind of dialectic between um, you know, sort of a theoretical, philosophical view of your work, and then, but then just the sheer pleasure of making the art and then coming back to conceptualize it again is, is that how it works for you? Or, or do you really just start with the artwork? I started, uh, you know, no, I started out of a desperate need to try and make sense. And uh, I mean, the theorizing became part of that, and I'm quite sure I've fed back into it. Uh, but, uh, and I have now quite a, an elaborate uh, with a set of rules by which I make, through which I make the work, which are not, I mean, the, the theory, uh, attends to that, but glances off it, um, so that they are fundamentally works that emerge out of experience and out of desire for desire and desire for subversion. Um, yeah, it's a it's a phenomenologically oriented practice. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I always think that my quite intense theorization of it, I, and I had this thought strongly up until now, was actually a, a, what I call my loincloth. You know, it was something I used to cover myself with him because it seemed to be so very naked about what, how, would, how could I do this improper stuff and, well, pull out the theory and cover myself and I'll talk about it and I'll tell you about ethics and politics, but my God, what was underneath? <laughs> so, so uh, yes, and, and, I, and writing this paper has been fantastic because I said, oh, well, you know, it's fine. The underneath is fine, it's fantastic. So here I am, naked. But there's a way, there's a way in which, though, the theor your your theoretical explication makes clear the how really subversive these paintings were. I mean, some people could could look at this without thinking about what you have said. You know, said. So this, the, so I'm not sure I buy that about the loincloth. I mean, this way in which you know your 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 interpretation of your and your expression. Of what these paintings are about really reveals how deeply subversive they are, as well. They used to terrify me, and now they terrify other people. You make <laughs> sure of that. you make sure of that that you feel very uncomfortable when you're no, looking no, at those no, no, I think fleshy, I'm, I think fleshy. I'm the most terrorized by them actually, <laughs> because I mean, I, my partner I keep on saying, oh, you know, "This is terrible. This is, I, I, what kind of woman am I?" It's a good thing, isn't it? Just beautiful. <laughs> so I, I love that. Um, you know that you, you said at one point the the painting was both vulnerable and shocking at the same time, and it, they do have that effect. Um, I wanted to ask you about this idea of vulnerability as a generative space. Um, you know, this this wound as an opening. Um, you know, looking at your paintings, I think a lot about. Um, you know, kind of scars on the terrain of feeling, or um, yeah, could you talk a little bit about? Well, writing this paper has made it very clear to me that they are about transforming the wound, uh, and that that, uh, that the whole impulse of the practice is about the transformation of wounds, mm. um, and uh, that's elaborate vocabulary, the you know, the grammar, everything is all part of that. But I think the impulse is fundamentally about the transformation of the wound. Mm. 
Um, I don't even know what those wounds are, to be honest. I mean, this is deeply psychoanalytic. I really don't know. I have a very good life. Uh, I have certainly have had certain scars. Um, and maybe what I said is true. Maybe it is about misogyny and whatever. Maybe it's about my parents. I don't know. I mean, it's always about one's parents. Yeah. And it also seems to be very much rooted in particular experiences of, of place and, and, you know, particularly South Africa and, and, you know, this idea of, I love this idea of this double entente of going south, you know, um, to, to another regions and to the other regions of the body. Yes. Um, but could you say something about your, your perception of yourself as, I, I know you don't see yourself as an exile, but is, is there something particular about being from another place? I, and I know South Africa has extraordinary landscapes mm. and, and what that means. Well, it certainly started in South Africa and it's been going for a long, long time. I mean, the, and this call that I talk about is a profound part of it and it certainly started there. And then when I started theorizing it and then it became, and then I was living here with always the call to go back to South Africa. And indeed, when I went to Patagonia and to South Africa and to New Zealand, the, the, my excitement is much more intense than when I went to Germany, for example. Um, but I think it's much more linked up with this idea of transgression. I rather like going to the nether regions, and I rather like being an outsider, and I rather like not being of the metropole. It seems to me that that transgressiveness is central to my practice and to my being, probably. I had a question, you know, you, you talk about um, the sublime as that which dismantles cognitive control. And so if the sublime already fulfills that function, what then does a feminist sublime add to, add yeah. to that yeah. in particular? The difficult question. Um, yeah, well, um, I, for a long time I didn't even call myself a sublime landscape painter. I, I, I actually just thought I was a feminist painter. It seemed to me then <coughs> it was uh, ridiculous not to call myself a sublime painter, or, although I call myself an improper sublime landscape painter for a variety of reasons. So I give myself that sort of get out of jail free card. Um, I, I mean, I, the sublime does indeed, uh, so I am a sublime paint, uh, painter. The gap in signification that I, uh, you know, this reversibility that I took, told about spoke about and its production of the sublime gap, I think does uh, put cognition under a lot of pressure. It doesn't disappear, mm -hmm. but it puts it under a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. So I took that as a given. Um, and so the original question whether I was, no, this was a feminine sublime was a genuine question. Um, I think it's, I think I'm rather happier with the idea that it's an improper sublime than mm -hmm. a feminine sublime. Mm -hmm. um, because it seems to, to, it just seems to be wider. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't mean to say I'm not a feminist at all. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm. I was also interested in how you're now moving towards this idea of um, geological time, as you said, and um, and because so much of your your work at the beginning is focused on the human and the body, and are you moving more towards this, you know, engagement with ideas of the post-human or the non-human in, in these in these more recent works? Yeah, I, I, I don't think theoretically 
I, I mean, I know of them, but I, I, I don't think that I'm, you know, it's not a frame that I'm thinking toward. I, I said that these calls have been happening to me forever. They are part of the practice. They cause as events. Uh, but if I do shape it as time, it's really got to do with um, those events appear in time. They, I mean, they, I will be in a landscape and the event will appear to me. So uh, in that sense, to mark it as time is to take it out of space because the tradition of sublime landscape painting is largely framed in terms of space. You know, in Friedrich, you look into the space. Uh, to, to take up the issue of time um, is to, in a sense, take up that which is, you know, in the couplet time-space, is to take up that which is not usually looked at. Um, but I am, I ha I, I, in preparing this talk, I looked at Jane Bennett, you know, who, who's written on Vibrant Matter. Mm -hmm. And I, there was a wonderful um, YouTube clip, uh, no, not a clip, a YouTube um, a lecture uh, at the Chicago Institute of Visual Arts, I think it was. And she was talking about hoarding, hoarding and the cause, the cause of objects. Mm -hmm. And um, I, that resonated for me very much, that um, for some of us, we just have a an aptitude, an app, in which we relate viscerally and powerfully to objects and to the landscape. And, and that's what happens to me. I've done it forever. Um, so, uh, I, so my current project is called Towards Deep and Radiant Time. Um, and um, that carries all of that for me, but it also I mean, obviously, it's a sublime project, um, but it is also a project that goes toward a sort of undifferentiated um, I can't get word, categories, uh, both time and space. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, maybe, may, I mean, there's a, another layer here which I could unpack is that. Um, the immensity of that time and the cause of the landscape which I respond to um, are always the surface of the earth. Uh, and I see the, that surface as some kind of corp corpus, some kind of body, mm. some kind of whole body. Um, and that linking to the events of that whole body seems to me like a, a particular kind of interconnectedness that is wonderful. Mm. One thing you haven't mentioned is the sort of, um, whether there's any kind of uh, ecological component to your work and a, a reflection on the fragility of the current ecosystem. I mean, you talk a lot about the openings and as, as being vulnerable, the glacier and so forth, but is, is, is there some sort of also reflection about you know, the state of our planet the fragility. I, I don't think consciously, but uh, I, I, when I saw that crotch of the dying glacier, um, it spoke to me so viscerally, and it must have spoken to me as, as a dying glacier. Um, and there were several other dying glaciers that, you know, just knocked me in the solar plexus. And that, so, so if I have a, an ecological response, it's not on any beautiful level, it's on a, a deeply emotive level. That I have to do this. This is a call that has been made on me. Mm. 
And yet your, your paintings are so lush and, and fertile. So, you know, there, there, there is no sense of, of, of sort of death or passing away. They seem endlessly sort of, you know. Lively. Lively, yes. Yeah. Relentlessly lively. Yes, <laughs> yes. Some of yeah, that. Yeah. A little bit too, too lush. Um, thank you, Lola. Do you want to tell us about your upcoming exhibition? Yes. Um, it's called Towards Deep and Radiant Time. And uh, it's on at the Arcade in Bush House from the 21st of May till the 26th of July. It'd be wonderful if you could come. If you'd like an invitation, let me know. Great. Well, when I put these two into conversation, it really was because I had met both of them in the context of war studies. But it turns out that there is a link uh, between their work, which I think we'll, we'll find when, when Edmund speaks, and that is about... Um, the terrain of, of the psyche. So now I would like to, to turn to Edmund and, um, and introduce him. He can put up his, his PowerPoint. And Edmund, you, you're welcome to sit or to, to stand, whatever, whatever is comfortable. I met uh, Edmund when he gave a presentation at a symposium that I co-organized at uh, the Courtauld Institute of Art on Art and Terrorism um, on a fantastic uh, body of work called Negative Publicity, Artifacts of Extraordinary Rendition, which was published by Aperture in 2016, um, a collaboration with the human rights lawyer uh, Crofton Black and which um, Edmund um, photographed um, black sites um, in their most sort of mundane aspect. And this was published along with uh, redacted documents uh, describing these places. Um, it was an extraordinary uh, body of work. And it recently won um, the International Center for Photography's 2017 Infinity Award for Documentary and, uh, and Photography, uh, very well deserved. Uh, Edmund Clark is an award-winning artist who links history, politics, and representation. His research-based work combines a range of references and forms, including bookmaking, installation, photography, video, documents, texts, and found images and other materials. Recurring themes include developing strategies for reconfiguring how subjects are seen and engaging with state censorship to explore unseen experiences, spaces, and processes of control and incarceration in the so-called global war on terror and elsewhere. Uh, Edmund has published six books and exhibited widely, including major solo exhibitions at the International Center of Photography Museum in New York, the Imperial War Museum in London, and the Zafir Raum für Fotografie, Reis Engelhorn Museum in Mannheim, Germany. His work has been acquired for national and international collections, including the ICP Museum, the George Eastman House, um, both in New York, and the National Portrait Gallery, the Imperial War Museum, and the National Media Museum in Great Britain. Thank you, Edmund, for coming. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, 
So I'm going to, if you'll hear me okay, talk um, about one particular series called My Shadow's Reflection, which is form a book and in another form an installation piece. Um, yeah, I mean, as Anna said, my uh, kind of main practice over the past uh, 12, 15 years or so has been about conflict and about looking at uh, kind of trying to find visual strategies for bringing out and um, visualising these sort of unseen locations and processes and experiences of the war on terror, particularly in relation to uh, notions of control and incarceration and interrogation. So I've worked on things like control orders in the United Kingdom, working with a terrorism suspect held in a control order house. Uh, I've done work around the world about Guantanamo Bay and the experience of being held there and the CIA secret prison program and other work in Afghanistan and other places. Um, my very first book, however, was about a prison. It was about a place called Kingston Prison, E-Wing in Kingston Prison in uh, the United Kingdom, which was at the time the only wing which had been devised or set up to hold ageing life prisoners. So men in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s who had been inside for, in some cases, quite short periods, but up to kind of 45 years. Um, so I have worked in prison quite a lot. Then I come across this opportunity to be uh, the artist in residence in um, a place called HMP Grendham, uh, which came up about four years ago. Uh, was advertised by the Arts Council and someone suggested I had a look at it and my initial reaction was I'm not going to do it because I've done that before. But then I found out that Grendon um, is Europe's only wholly therapeutic prison, which means that the whole of the prison environment, the whole, everyone who works there is taking part in a, uh, a group therapeutic, an ongoing therapeutic experience. Um, there is another prison, a private prison in the UK, which has a therapeutic wing, but that's situated within a mainstream prison environment. The whole point about this place is everyone who goes there takes part in this process. Um, it is a category B prison, um, which is a high category. Uh, there are six communities. There's a, an assessment wing. There's um, a wing uh, specifically for people with learning difficulties. There are I've got the right number here, three mainstream populations and then one wing which is specifically for uh, people who are sex offenders. Uh, the vast majority of the people there are on life sentences or indefinite sentences for public protection. Um, what other statistics can I throw at you about them? Um, over 50% of them have at some point, not necessarily in Grendon, but previously attempted suicide. Um, it is a place you have to be sentenced to at least five years. You have to ask to be sent there. So uh, the men who are there will have asked uh, to go there from other mainstream prisons around the country. Um, the population there is small. It's kind of at its fullest. It's about 235 um, people. Um, the nature of kind of life there is that... Um, you agree, you sign up to a sort of constitution for each wing and you agree to forego taking drugs, using illicit alcohol, uh, indulging in any sort of violence and having sex. Um, you um, 
live in a community where twice a week the community, uh, the wing will get together, so about 30 to 35 men will get together on a Friday and a Monday morning uh, together with the prison officers and the therapeutic staff to deal with issues which affect the whole of the wing, um, which are partly bureaucratic but also to do with issues of discipline um, and therapy. And that's where if people's commitment to the wing is being held into account, if people have contravened any of the kind of the rules, and these, it's a very bureaucratic place, um, then that has to be dealt with, that has to be discussed, that has to be accounted for in front of the rest of the community. The other three days of the week, um, the wing will break up into smaller groups, six to eight people, where they deal um, in those small groups with their narratives of crime, the crimes they have committed, and their own backgrounds, their own histories. And not surprisingly, um, most of the people who are in Grendon have had backgrounds which are characterised by uh, a great deal of chaos, um, extreme uh, experiences of abuse and neglect and addiction. Um, one of the sort of the, the main characteristics of this place is that you are on show the whole time. So the moment you wake up in the morning and are released from your cell at 8 in the morning until you are locked up at night at 7.15, you are constantly on display. You are being held to account for your behaviour and you have to hold everyone else in your community to account for their behaviour. And if you don't do that, if you, are, if you are kind of reticent and you don't kind of say what you think is right, right or wrong, then you will be challenged. You will be challenged for being someone who's not actually taking part in uh, the way in which the, kind of the, the process is supposed to work. Um, now, uh, if any of you know anything about prisons, most prisons are hierarchies of violence and power, where to survive you have to wear a mask, you have to project a persona, which kind of preserves your place in this hierarchy, which gives you a sense of protection. You create links, you create um, kind of alliances which, which facilitate your existence. So to go into this kind of environment where you have to forego power, you have to forego that kind of alliance, you have to take that mask off and you have to be held to account for what you have done and the way you behave all the time is an extremely traumatic thing to do and it takes quite a lot of getting used to. And the average length of time people have, are there is... I mean, it's, it's at least five years. Some people I've, I've worked with there have been there for kind of eight, ten years. Um, it's a sort of psychotherapeutic panopticon in some ways, where you go to be seen and you go to reveal. You go to share, you go to slowly unpeel yourself and be vulnerable. It is about, in a sense, learning to be vulnerable and learning to cope with that vulnerability and learning not to exploit that vulnerability in other people. Um, so I'm there, um, I have two functions, two roles. One is to help facilitate work, um, to engage the men there with creative practice themselves. Uh, so I'm typically there two days a week and I will go onto a different wing uh, on a Monday or a Tuesday night and try and get a group together and I can facilitate materials, but more than anything else I try and animated discussion. I try to get people to work together to show each other the work they're making, to talk about my work, to talk about what I'm doing outside the prison, to talk about anything from art to politics to the food, anything. It's about animating a conversation and getting people to share um, what they're doing. Secondly, it was to make a body of work. 
in response to the place. Um, and one of the first things I was told is that you can't make images which reveal people's identity. Now that's for perfectly good reasons to do with um, their victims and their victims' security. Uh, and in some cases for the security of the men who I'm working with who are there so that their, their image isn't seen when they do eventually get out. It's not recognised. Um, but in an, at another way, it, does, it spoke to me about invisibility. It spoke to me about the notion of how uh, people in the criminal justice system, prisoners, are seen or not seen, are perceived by us, are mediated by this, by the media, by the opinion formers, by the policy makers. There is this sort of binary of um, self-perpetuating reductive good and evil, that if you have committed a crime, if you go into prison, once you go behind that wall, you disappear. You almost cease to be a human being, and when you do finally re-emerge, you are forever stigmatised by what you have done. Um, and that kind of idea that I couldn't make images which show them was something I felt I had to confront um, and deal with head-on. I also felt the work had to be about the place itself and the experience of going through this very intense uh, therapeutic process. Um, I mean, one thing I should say about my work I've done previously is, you know, I talk about being interested in, in issues of representation and politics. Now, when you work with subjects like Guantanamo Bay, with people who've been held in Guantanamo, with people who've been um, subject to the CIA secret prison program, kind of the issues of representation of showing people is very problematic. And I, in some of my other work, I have deliberately taken the path, the strategy of not showing people because the representation of the human form in that context, you know, if you show an image of a South Asian Arab man with a beard and say, this is an innocent man from Guantanamo Bay, good luck, because most people will be looking at a terrorist. They will be looking at what they believe is a terrorist. It's a very kind of crude example. But for a lot of my work, I've actually looked through documentation, through spaces, through objects, notions of the everyday, notions of the unexotic, which kind of get behind the representations we see on our screens, which tend to be brief and quite exoticized about the war on terror. So the notion of kind of confronting the human form and making the human form part of my work, uh, I suppose, was one of the challenges that I also wanted to take on in, in Grendon. Um, I'm going to after that rather long preamble, uh, cut to the chase and show you some images from the exhibition, which was at the Icon Gallery in Birmingham um, earlier this year, or well, last year and this year, uh, which will then lead up to uh, this one body of work called My Shadow's Reflection. So the overall exhibition is called In Place of Hate. Um, it consisted of a, a series of rooms. The first room was this. This is an installation called 1.98 um, metres square. That is the dimensions of the square in the middle of that light box. Uh, that is the size of a cell at Grendon, 1.98 metres, or when they were built, six foot six inches. Um, so it's, it's the carceral space, but it's also a light box covered with lots of beautiful flowers and leaves. Uh, material which I had collected and pressed uh, while I was working in the prison. This came from, I've never worked with this kind of material before, this came from a conversation with my partner, who, said to, who in the, kind of, the context of talking about what happens in this place, what is nurtured there, 
She said, well, why don't you very simply look at things which do grow in that environment? And I thought, hmm, I'm not sure about that. But I started it, and I've never done it before, and I did it very badly. I, pressed, I picked this stuff and pressed it under my art books in my office between sheets of prison paper towels, and most of the stuff rotted. Um, but it was kind of an interesting process, and I kept doing it, and I was intrigued by the process of either rotting or drying and how that could be looked at. Um, so in the, in the installation, I display all the material which I had pressed during kind of three years on this big light box. So it's this partly beautiful, also partly troubling space, installation. And what I found in, so fascinating about this material was once your eyes adjusted to the light box, the closer you looked at it, the longer you looked at it, the more you could see. You could see every vein in every petal. You could see every fold, every tear. You could, I mean, some of this stuff came so fragile that I had to, you could only move it with tweezers. You could only pick it up that way. It became incredibly delicate. Yet the more you look at it, the more detail constantly comes out at you. The more fragility, the more beauty, the more infinite detail you could see. And that's something I'd never really done before. Um, and also the variety, which was there. Um, so that was the first installation. The second, there's a little video of it. Um, second installation was this called Vanishing Point. So these kind of ideas of visibility and invisibility come out throughout what you can see and can't see comes out throughout the exhibition and the work. And these are five screens. Um, you can see why it's called Vanishing Point. They are journeys around the prison, these kind of circular repetitive journeys which people make in this space along the very long corridors around the exercise yard, the inside, the outside of the, of the exercise yard, the gardens which they are given access to for one evening every fortnight. Um, these are journeys which the, the officers and the staff make as well as the prisoners. And the final screen at the end, the vanishing point, is the one journey which nobody else can make, which is around the whole of the interior perimeter of the prison, which is 15 minutes long. So it's a, a series of disembodied journeys through time and space. And as you can see, part of this is redacted because there are elements here which I can't show you, whether it's security cameras, whether it's lights, whether it's doors with locks. So again, this notion of what is visible, what is not visible, is being explored. Um, I made a film um, called The Oristia. There are two main creative therapies in the prison. One is art therapy and the other is psychodrama. In psychodrama, a group of men will work with a trained psychodramatist and each six to eight men, uh, and each session the group will choose one man to be the, the main protagonist, and typically that man will play uh, a victim, probably the victim of his index offence. And the other men take on roles either associated with that episode or with kind of a wider context, characters from the life of the main protagonist. And the psychodramatist will take them back through a process of revisiting, of imagining, of empathising, of exploring, understanding why it happened, how it happened, what were the triggers, what were the histories, the wider familial uh, life narratives which are going on behind that episode. Um, I was intrigued in how those narratives related to narratives of violence, um, which I've paid a lot of money to go and see in theatre. <laughs> Um, I was also intrigued by this idea of catharsis and of bringing an audience into a gallery space to see a film which was about learning how humans behave and why humans behave uh, and going away with a different view of that form of behaviour and maybe a different view of them 
and a different understanding of your own self and your own behaviour. So I worked with um, the psychodrama department to put on a, a, I'm not sure what you call it, a session, an episode, based on the Oristia, where members of the psychodrama department played characters from um, the Oristia. They um, represented them, Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, Iphigenia, uh, Orestes, the chorus, uh, and spoke as, um, talked as um, being a perpetrator or a victim or a witness. And then the men were asked to identify with one of those characters or more of those characters in terms of those different themes, and then to have a conversation with uh, that character about what they would, about their own backgrounds and about what they would talk, what they would say to that character in terms of their experience at Grendon. Um, it had to be a one-off event. I couldn't, we couldn't rehearse it because it had to be a genuine psychodramatic episode for the men taking part. So it was a one-off uh, event which we filmed one afternoon in the, uh, the prison gym and it's 78 minutes long. And in the exhibitions you can see it's played out on these three large monitors on a ring of chairs and you can see the chairs there in the middle that ring of chairs are brought from the prison those are kind of that's the, the therapeutic circle where it all takes place um, and lastly there's this series of work which is called my shadows reflection which, which comprises three types of image um, architectural images from around um, the prison um, you can see one on the right there um, images of the, the plant material which I had picked, which I then photographed on a light box, so you have this notion of, kind of translucency coming through everything being seen. And then um, a series of images um, where you can't identify the people who are in the picture, um, which were made with a pinhole camera. Um, and I chose to work with, I've never worked with that kind of technology before. I was interested in doing that because it's, you know, for a number of reasons, there is no lens, there is nothing to mediate that image. I am not making a kind of, I'm not making that image myself, I am not, there is nothing to focus the image. So it's, there's no mediation, but that also means it's not going to be sharp, so it's not going to be identifiable, ideally. Secondly, kind of in relation to that, that idea of the panopticon, it sort of structurally, formally sort of resonated with me, this idea of a you know, panopticon an architectural panopticon, a series of cells where you have one light source, a window, a small light source flooding through into the chamber, the vault, and obviously the camera comes from the brief, the vault, that kind of formal relationship. And I also felt that I feel in panopticon prisons, most of the time, I don't think you would actually see the prisoner. I think what you would probably see would be a presence, would be a silhouette, would be a shadow, would be something moving rather than actually an identifiable person, a kind of a shade. Um, so I was intrigued in how, kind of how that would play out, trying to make images of the men. Um, how the images were made was in the group environment. So I, as much as possible, put myself into kind of a therapeutic context. I would attend uh, the Monday morning whole wing therapy meetings as much as I could. And... Um, worked with groups of men on each wing where we would go into a room. We would, I would set up two lights. I'd set up a black backdrop. Um, I would, in the group environment, men would take turns to stand between the camera and that black backdrop for an exposure of about six to seven minutes. And typically I would do two exposures with each person. And during that time, 
They would talk, so I would ask them questions. The rest of the group would ask them questions. They would talk about why they're there. They would talk about what they've done. They would talk about their own backgrounds. They would talk about the nature of life in Grendon. They would talk about the therapeutic process. They would talk about food. They would talk about whatever. Um, and as they talked, they would move. So it's, it's kind of, it's the, the structure of making the work is in a sense trying to reproduce that idea of communication and sharing and being seen, being exposed. The second exposure, I would encourage them to move. I would say, you know, you can make a shape, you can make the form of yourself that you want. So ultimately, I don't see these as, as photographs even. I don't, I don't see them as portraits. I see them as their impressions. They're impressions of a conversation. They are the shape uh, that the men are making of themselves at Grendon. They are kind of a manifestation of that process. Um, I also worked with some of the prison officers and therapeutic staff, you can see there's an officer there, uh, to kind of talk to them about, like, get, get them to perform, get them to stand in front of this group of men, for them to talk about the experience of working there, what it's like to wear a uniform in that context, how the things they have heard have infected, have affected them. And what you hear at Grendon in these therapeutic contexts is pretty strong. It is pretty full on. Uh, it is pretty traumatic. Um, in the exhibition, I uh, project the images onto sheets. These are the sheets the men sleep in, sleep between, these green sheets. Um, I did that because it's another way in which I was trying to bring the materiality of the prison into the gallery space, but also because in relation to the therapeutic experience, there was this notion of hard lockup, the phrase I had heard several times, which is you know, at certain times in your therapeutic journey, when you are listening to, when you are saying what you have done, uh, when you are revisiting that, when you are revisiting what has been done to you as a child, as a grown-up, your own experiences, and when you're hearing that from everybody else uh, day after day after day, at certain times the experience of being locked up at 7.15 at night is hard. That's when you stop and you reflect and you are by yourself, when suddenly being on show, being on display, being accountable all day stops. And then you have to, you have to think, you have to reflect on what you've heard and what you have talked about yourself. And the idea of kind of the bedsheet was as close as I could get you to that moment, that period when these men are by themselves between those sheets, touching their skin. Um, it's called My Shadow's Reflection because that comes from one person's, a man called Tom, who's a poet. He wrote a poem, which I can show you, about his image. And that, that phrase came out of that, My Shadow's Reflection. And I wanted to use it for two reasons. One, because I don't believe there is a binary of good and evil. We are all on a spectrum. We all have these images and sides. When I first made these images, I was very troubled by them. I, I thought, I can't go on with this, because all I am actually doing is perpetuating this idea of the monster, this idea of the ghostly person that we don't see. Um, I didn't like them. Um, but I took them back to the men who had made them. They talked about them, and we took them into a community meeting. Uh, and they talked about them in front of the community, and other men in the community responded to the, the images. And it was the way in which they spoke about them, the way in which they articulated their response to the image of themselves, 
and what they thought other people would see about them and read about them into the image that, in a sense, made them work, gave them a, a kind of a validity, because they started to talk about them very much in the context of the therapeutic process they were going through, in terms of the monster they see in themselves, in terms of coming, of coming to terms with that monster inside them, but also in terms of transformation, in terms of change, in terms of seeing themselves as children. They, they just articulated... Them, the, the way they articulated the images is what gave them a sort of a, a sense in the work. In the exhibition itself, I um, don't show the words in relation to the images. You, you only have the three types of image being projected. But the second reason why it's called My Shadow's Reflections, as you walk around this installation, you can't help but at some point walk in front of the projector. So your own image is projected onto these sheets. Your own shadow becomes part of the exhibition. As I say, it's because we all have the potential to be here. We all have that monster inside us. You know, I have been fortunate not to have had a history of extreme violence and neglect and abuse. I have not had a serious addiction problem. I have not yet had a serious mental health issue. That's a, those are privileges which separate me from most of the people who are there. Um, this is, yeah, this is, can't see very much of that. Um, these are some of their words. I'll show you briefly, I'll show you the PDF of the book in a minute as well, which I have here. We have some copies available over there, and also some of the War on Terror work is also available over there. Can I get up the other... Oh, he's disappeared. Uh, the other PDF, which I can show you. In the exhibition, there, which I don't have here, there was a, the last room where some of the um, men had made... It's on the PDF, it's not on the PowerPoint, which is a bit irritating. But I, got, I worked with men to make creative interventions on their image. So I would give them prints of their image. And some people wrote on them, some people painted on them, some people cut them up. Uh, and those were exhibited along with a monitor which had these words scrolling through in that uh, context. Let me see if I can do it. Um, here we go. Hi, I just want to get up the book PDF and yes. start. This one, right? Yeah. Cool, thank you. Um, so in the book, the three types of image are shown like this. This is a book which um, I wanted to make beyond the catalogue of the exhibition because I wanted to have something to leave with the men who I've worked with. Uh, to make something which is, um, I, I don't know what the right word is, whether it's beautiful, whether it's something important, something to last beyond the exhibition uh, for them to have, for us to share. Uh, I'm also sending this out to the Minister of Justice, the Shadow Minister of Justice, criminal, you know, crime correspondents. And in the middle of the book, the words are printed on 
green paper. So in the, in the centre of the book, the words are pressed uh, on four sheets of paper. And that, at the start of that is Tom's poem about himself, where the phrase, my shadow's reflection, comes from. As I say, we've got some copies of that here, so you, you can look at those words uh, in a bit more detail, because those are the words which make the whole thing work. Um, yeah, I think that's all I've got to say, really. Thank you. take so many risks as an artist in putting yourself in these places um, you know, in, a, in, a, in a vulnerable way and this, the work that you generate is just absolutely extraordinary. When I was, when I was looking at it, um, I, was hap I happened to be revisiting a, a, a book that was really formative to, to my thinking as a philosopher when I, when I began um, PhD studies long ago um, with Martha Nussbaum, who was really um, sort of reinventing ethics at the time in the 80s. The book was called uh, The Fragility of Goodness, Luck and Tragedy in Freak Ethics. And I'm going to read a passage which I think really resonates with your reflections. Um, to the poets, as to at least some of the philosophers, it seemed difficult to, to, to deny that a person incapacitated by a long-term disfiguring disease, or a person thrown into prison and tortured, or a woman raped by the enemy and cast into slavery, has been denied at least some ethically significant elements of human flourishing. Such people are not only unhappy, they also do in exchange fewer of the things that make for a completely good human life. Thus, even without raising the issue of luck's role in making us wise or courageous or just in the first place, we can see that it appears to have an important ethical role in making us able or not so able to act virtuously and thus to lead ethically complete lives. And um, this, is, this has always struck me as such an important um, way of thinking about what it means to be a human person and the potential to have a full human life and the role of luck and fate in our ability to be ethical. Um, and thinking about uh, uh, prisons and how forgotten this, you know, this wounded, um, you know, people who have had the, the worst luck in the world. Um, this, this, this increasingly invisible population, which, I mean, particularly as someone who comes from the United States, you know, we're building just massive cities of prisons to hide away these people. I'm, I'm wondering, is, is there any kind of changing sensibility with regard to these people? Or are, they, are they really just the most sort of invisible people in our society? Um, are they the most invisible people in our society? Uh, that's a difficult question to answer. I think there's quite a few fragile 
and invisible groups in our society. Um, yeah, they are a particularly problematic group because it's very easy to hate them. Um, and we are encouraged to hate people who are, um, you know, who uh, have carried out misdemeanors. And it's quite easy to understand why you would hate someone who has preyed on his stepchildren or his own children, as I have met. Um, but it's also, you know, you can't not allow someone who has done that the opportunity for reflection and for um, rehabilitation and for believing that they won't do it again. Yes, no, I mean, I, I, what I mean and by remorse. invisible is, yeah. is, is, is that, you know, they are a segment of society that are simply just put away, locked yeah. away and sequestered. And, and, you know, as someone who's worked um, with refugees and most recently in the crisis, I think that there's a way in which, you know, the refugee has really overtaken the sure. public imagination, I mean, to a great extent in a very negative way, right? Um, but um, there was a time when there was a great deal of interest in the plight of prisoners. And I'm thinking about when I was studying photography in, in 2000s, the work, say, of Taryn Simon, mm. the Innocence Project. Um, there was quite a bit of interest in, in you know, the plight of prisoners and photographing and documenting this. And, um, and I'm wondering if, if you know, that, that, that population has... If people have sort of sort of given up on that um, in the wake of, you know, other sort of more pressing. Well, I think in the United Kingdom, populations. in the United Kingdom, I think it's very difficult to do. Um, you know, the access I've been given is extraordinary. Uh, it's very difficult to get access to make work in prisons. As I say it's it's virtually impossible to take images, identifiable images, identifiable images of prisoners. Which means, which means, kind of coming up, coming up with a, a sort of half decent visual strategy is very, very difficult. In America, it's actually easier. I mean, it's still pretty hard. But I'm Aperture have just published um, a whole issue based around mm. incarceration in America and different examples of work that's being done mm. there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult population to work with visually. In a meaningful way, um, and those are for you know the reasons I set out at the start. It's mm. it's it's a very visually charged group of people to try and represent, right? Um, which is why you know I think a lot of writing about prisoners is about prison and criminal justice is is perhaps stronger than a lot of the visual work that's been carried out. It's why the work which um, prisoners are allowed to make themselves is really important. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you're aware of thing called the Kersler Trust, but each year they have a, an exhibition of work made by people in prisons, in um, immigration detention facilities, in secure mental units, which is on at the South Bank, which is extraordinary, um, really powerful and interesting and clever and nuanced work is, is shown there. Um, 
I, one of the things I have done in the prison is I've organised an exhibition each year um, of the work that the prisoners and make the men make themselves. And actually having an exhibition inside the prison where people are invited, artists, gallery people, academics, um, all sorts of different people are invited by me and by other in groups working with governor and other people to come into the prison and to look at the exhibition in the conference centre is um, fantastic uh, because it's the one day in the year that these guys get to be artists rather than prisoners. So even when they're talking to me and talking to each other, they're still prisoners, but suddenly they have another artist, you know, we've had Peter Kennard and we've had some amazing people mm -hmm. in and suddenly people are asking them, so what, what, what's this about? Why did you paint that? Or what's right. going on with that? Right. And that's a, a very profound experience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm slightly rambling here, but you know, a lot of the men I've worked with have never made any work before. Right. So engaging them in that creative practice, giving them that form of expression is a very powerful right. thing. Of course, now there's a lot of um, talk about uh, the therapeutic role of arts and artists are a bit, um, you know, understandably a bit um, nervous about art being instrumentalized mm -hmm. in a certain kind of way, but it does seem that, you know, in, in, in these kinds of contexts that it is extremely powerful. It can um, be very powerful, yeah, yeah, and, you know, um, you know, art as therapy is one thing, um, that is a very powerful way of unlocking uh, forces, emotions, um, which can't be articulated initially. Um, but in another way, the creative practices which people have in prison are also a way of escaping. They are um, particularly the intensity of what they go through in Grendon. Um, in another way, it's, again, perhaps it's related to the processes which take place in this particular prison, but it's a way of um, kind of unlocking, people unlocking things with inside themselves when, you know, you know it's, it's difficult not to talk about this, these experiences without it sounding like cliche, but you know, people who have never basically had anyone say anything encouraging to them before, just being said, have a go, just do it, do right. it. Right, right. Make it. Talk about it, right. and that's that. You know, it can be a very powerful experience. Right. Um, uh, this this reflection about um, wearing a mask and the the unmasking is is really is fascinating. And some of those images um, reminded me of Sally Mann's work, mm -hmm. Flesh and Spirit. And I was wondering if. Um, you know, in which she also uses, you know, old photography to create these kind of ghostly images. And I was wondering if, you know, some of the men saw a kind of spiritual self in those, those blown out yeah, yeah. images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that comes out in some of the comments, mm. definitely. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly in relation to kind of ideas of transformation, but no, some of them did see themselves in a sort of a spirit way. Mm. Um, I mean, Sally Mann is an interesting kind of reference. I mean, clearly the way in which I set it up with the kind of the black and white and the 
the portrait format. Yeah, I am referencing obviously kind of the mugshot and Bertie or and that kind of the way in which the criminal, the prisoner, was first visualised photographically at the end of the 19th century. That was kind of one thing mm. that was clearly playing against, playing with, with and playing against. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So your work at the prison continues. Um, it does. Yes. I mean. Yeah, they've asked that they want me. Well, they've asked me to extend it to the end of this year, um, which I will do, um, so I can organise another exhibition of the prisoners' work, but also to put this work on in some form in the prison itself, which mm -hmm. will be very important. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that the kind of as much as I can, I will put on the icon show in the conference centre, which is sort of not as glamorous as it sounds. The conference centre can sound glamorous. Uh, yeah, so we'll see how that goes down. Actually, last night I showed, um, we had a screening of for the 10 men who took part in the Oris Dyer. Um, sadly, only seven of them could be there. Uh, but they and uh, the psychodrama staff who helped with the film, they, they, they saw the, the film for the first time in full, which was really mm. interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, very interesting experience for them. Um, yeah, I've got to go. But you, yeah, you talked about kind of put, putting myself in brave situations. I don't really feel that at all. I mean, I of have. Of course, you don't. don't, you? I, don't I, I, I mean, I'm part of the therapeutic that's a, that's, process. That's well. because you're a brave person. Nonsense. I, I have supervision in the prison. Um, well, Guantanamo Bay. I mean, filming the photographing those black sites that was risky. Well, the first question which my supervisor put to me in the prison uh, was so 15 years of doing work about prisons and secret prisons and interrogation and torture and now you're here hmm why <laughs> what are you getting out of this hmm. so she turned it right around on me yeah hmm. so yeah, I've made a career out of other people's misery <laughs> I'm exploiting yeah yeah this is an exploitive situation it's of course this isn't this you know I can't so this isn't a collaboration. It is a collaboration. It's not a collaboration. It, it is no way. I mean I can tell, I can talk on a wing about what I'm trying to do, about how I'm trying to visualize, you know, ex confront the fact that you're not allowed to be seen, and how what does that say about you and how the world sees you? I can say it's going to be an exhibition here, and we're going to mm. make work in this way, and you can re and people respond to the images, but it, they're still totally taking me on trust. Yes. This is an exploitive situation. Well, I mean, whenever one enters a situation with a, such a great power differential, one has to ask oh. these questions. I mean, certainly when I was photographing in, in refugee camps, um, you know, that was the that was the first question I had to think about. And but there are, obviously there are ways that um, that give agency to to your mm. subjects sure. and uh, involve them in the process um, and i think that this is this is the fine line that that you, you have that you have found but more than that um you're bringing this to a larger public and making it you know a point of activism and so yeah i'd hardly say that it's exploitative but yeah <laughs> i mean the activist word is is an interesting one because um, I've never called myself an activist. Um, mm. And I think, particularly in relation to the, <clears throat> the war on terror work, um, when I talk about it, it sounds much, you know, it's, it, I am much more, 
overtly political about that work than when you see it. I mean, I do think it's, it is really important that um, work that is you know, in the art um, forum uh, that engages with really charged subjects like the war on terror or issues of incarceration doesn't bang you on the head and doesn't tell you what you're supposed to think straight away because it doesn't work for me. <coughs> work that, that I, the, if I'm told what something is about before I engage with it, it just switches me off and I think that's going to be really counterproductive. I do think it's important to, to try and make work which is different enough to engage people and then create a space where they can you know, find answers to their own questions. Just, just to engage people enough that the experience of spending time with your work will in some way reconfigure how they think about something, what right. they know about something. Right. Yeah. Right. But I, yeah. I don't know if that's activism or not. Thank you, Edmund, very much. It's always a pleasure to, to see your work. And I think that given that we're a fairly small group, we can break for wine and just feel free to gather around the artists. Edmund has some books back there that he's glad to sign. And uh, I just want to thank IAS again for this wonderful forum and for all of you for coming. And please enjoy the conversation to follow. Thank you. Thank you.